Stick around to the end of today's episode to hear the opening segment of Between the Lines, the Athletic's newest narrative podcast looking at the intersection of race and football. Now available on the Athletic Football Show podcast feed with new episodes coming out every Tuesday through March 7th. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, February 17th. Stephen Nesbitt here with Keith Law. I'm filling in for DVR. Keith, since your last taping with, with DVR, your farm system rankings and your organization top 20s have all been published. We'll, we'll dive deeper into the specifics uh, in this episode. But to entice those who have not yet looked at the rankings, the top five goes Dodgers, Guardians, Orioles, Diamondbacks, and Rays. You toiled over this for weeks for months only to have ravenous readers rip through it in probably 20 seconds um i think people have immense respect for they just hit control f (laughs) and they look for their team that's all they do no one reads the intro no one looks at the other teams they just control f and unless they're dodgers fans why do you hate my team so yeah i'm used to it so you put all this work into it scouting guys talking to player personnel for for their perspectives and also uh for scouting guys you weren't able to get to it's such an exhaustive mm-hmm. process. Do you, at this point, do you just vacation for uh, for weeks? Do you do you just log off? No, I no. Actually, I'm leaving in a matter of hours for my first draft trip of the spring. So I got basically no time off. There were past years when it used to run a little earlier, especially when I was at ESPN, where I would be like, I am bleeping off for a week. <laughs> Leave me alone. Sometimes would actually take a vacation. I might try to do that next year, like to schedule things a little bit differently, but it was never going to work out this year. We had one of my stepdaughters, her birthday was last weekend. The Eagles were in the Super Bowl. I don't remember who won. So let's probably, you know, let's just not talk about that. Valentine's Day, like it's been, the last week has been a month. So I'm, you know, there's actually a part of me that's like, no, it's, this is going to be relaxing. I get to go watch baseball games. It's the best part of the job. This is vacation, yeah. And, And it's none... It's none of the guys I just wrote about, right? This is a totally different domain. Mostly guys I've never seen before. So other than a couple of the guys at Vandy, it's mostly going to be guys I haven't scouted myself or or maybe I haven't seen since high school. So there's something like kind of fresh and different. I just, I love the first game of the spring is always a little bit special, right? You're back at the ballpark. I'm seeing friends I haven't seen in months. I'm back to looking at players. It often takes me a little while to be like, you wait you you know how to do this right you just gotta shift your brain a little bit and remember like what am i bearing down what is this stopwatch for oh right right we use this for yeah just so first couple innings might be a little just flush all the names that you've been turning over in your head for the last two months and oh yeah they're dead new ones. Yep. <laughs> it's draft time baby <laughs> gunner who Corbin, what? Burnson? I don't i never heard of these guys so as we look a little closer at this list you might expect to see um I don't know, many years, a more inverse relationship between the MLB standings today or end of last season and what the prospect rankings are. But no, the Dodgers continue to defy expectation. They are apparently good at both things, which um, which will take you a long way. They're not only well represented in the top 100, they have um, eight guys there. It's not just top end guys, the Cartayas, the Vargas, Miller, Stone. There's so much more depth in there, right? This is a, this is a, Org that you could have probably picked 
30 guys to fit in a lot of other top 20s. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, my others of note section, I don't do one for every team. Some teams I could barely get to 20. Um, we won't identify them publicly. You all know who you are. But uh, the Dodgers were one of those teams who was like, can't stop. I could just, I could have gone on another 10, 15 names. It just kept going, especially if I got more into guys who have kind of underperformed relative to expectations, draft position, et cetera. I just didn't cover a lot of those guys in the Dodgers because it's, you know, it's a situation where there's 25 or more guys who are just better, who are just more worth talking about. You know, should I spend time talking about you know, Jaron Kendall, who's a first-round bust? We all knew he was high risk. I'm not even criticizing. Or should I talk about Justin Robleski, who's barely back from Tommy John surgery, but in instructs last year? God damn it. Freaking Dodgers found another mid-rotation starter here. And, and you know, everybody could have had this guy. I mean, they're just better. They're better at the draft. They're, you know what they are better at, actually? It's they're better at at everything. It's the synthesis. It is, yes, they draft exceptionally well. They do really well in international. Their pro scouts are really good. That's how they find like a River Ryan in a trade for Matt Beattie. Um, their R&D guys are really good player development, but it's that all of those departments are really working together. And it's a model that Andrew Friedman, I think, really brought over from Tampa Bay. Like, let's get rid of the siloing that was very traditional in baseball. We are, we're a business and in well-run businesses, People communicate across departments. And so, you know, it's pretty clear from talking to a lot of the Dodgers people, you know, when they go trade for a River Ryan, for example, there's already communication with player development. Here's what we see on the pro scouting side. Player development looks and has some input. Yes, we can do this and this, and we are prepared to take in a player like that. We believe we can help a player like that improve. This is not just about money, right? Any team can do this, and the Rays do still do this, and they have less money than the Dodgers, marginally. So anybody can do this, and it should really tick you off. I don't know how much I can swear. I've been swearing all day anyway. But if you're the owner of any other club, it's, wait, the Dodgers are doing the thing. Why aren't we doing that? Everybody should be doing that. And the fact that the Dodgers keep doing it, that's two years in a row, they're tops on my farm system rankings, should really get under some people's skin, actually, because they're not doing anything there that anybody else could couldn't replicate. Yeah, pretty good way to not go away is to be at the top of that list and win 100 games a year. Yeah. So unsurprisingly, Diego Cartaya, number one prospect in the system and number six in the top 100. I'd imagine he progresses to double A this year, but not not far behind here is Dalton Rushing, number five prospect in the in the farm system, number 62 in your top 100. I mean, this was the backup to Henry Davis, the 1-1 in, in 2020 at Louisville. Uh, then took off. I mean, the dude can hit. He's He's been walking around with a 500 on base percentage since he left high school. Um, that seems like a real a real tool. Does he stay at catcher? What's the play there, you think, uh, positionally? I think we'll get a way better read this year. I mean, right now, the thought is he stays at catcher. Nobody's banging the table for the defense. Every scout I talked to, he was the big mover post-draft. Yeah. Um, if you look at where I had him in the draft, even to where he was drafted, and I think he was drafted right around where I ranked him, maybe slightly higher. But then compare that to where I have him now, he's way higher. And that's because pro guys got to look at him, and everybody came back and said, God, that guy can hit. He can really hit, often with some expletives included. Um, nobody's really talking about the defense, which is good and bad, right, in the sense that nobody's like, this guy sucks at catcher. This is an Austin Wells with the Yankees where most folks I talk to share my personal opinion, which is this guy cannot catch at a major league level. Uh, nobody's raving about the defense either. It's not like he is absolutely a catcher, 
I think we'll get a way better read on him this year, especially when he catches more. He only caught about half his games his junior year at Louisville. And as you said, Henry Davis was ahead of him the year before. So rushing was playing, but he was almost never catching. So I don't think we know a ton. I think that we will get a much better read this year. And by the way, I also think he's still a really good prospect if he doesn't catch. Obviously, he's much better if he stays behind the plate. And then it goes into, I think, where you were going with this, too, is the Dodgers are going to have a little bit of a problem, a good problem. But those two guys are pretty close to each other, kind of like the Pirates have with Henry Davis, who was hurt a ton of last year, and he, he needs reps. And Andy Rodriguez, who is way less heralded, but is played better, is definitely a better catcher right now, and he's probably going to get to the majors before Davis does because of the injuries and stuff. But those guys were at the same level for good parts of last year. And so they ended up with this sort of playing time dilemma. And at one point, they bumped one of those guys up. It's like, what? We, we just can't play everybody here. And you need your catchers to get more reps. And I wonder if the Dodgers do that with one of these guys. I actually might be more inclined to push rushing a little bit because he's older and just say, we're, we're going to move you to double A, even if you're not 100% ready. Um, I don't think it's really going to hurt him in this way. Both guys get very regular playing time right out of the gate. And then you just, obviously you let things play out from there. The Dodgers never seem <clears throat> desperate for uh, a prospect to come up and go right in the rotation. They figure out a way to, to have a pretty solid five and, and then good depth behind it with Bobby Miller. You have him as your number five overall pitcher, uh, starting pitcher. And mm-hmm. uh, his stuff is sensational. Uh, he has the stuff to play. Where is the biggest area uh, of improvement where he needs to address? And is that something you think you figure out, in the minors, or is is it just time to, to make him uh, give him a chance in the majors? So he had real trouble from the stretch yeah. last year, like one of the largest platoon splits, uh, not platoon splits, but, you know, uh, bases empty runners on splits I could remember seeing on a good prospect. And, hey, look, it could always be a fluke. One year splits of any sort are, are subject to lots of noise, but I don't think so, and that is something I would much rather have a guy working on in the minors than in the majors. And it would not surprise me if other guys I have ranked a little lower end up getting shots in the big league rotation before he does. We might see Ryan Pepio before, again, before we see Bobby Miller. We might see Gavin Stone in the big leagues before we see Bobby Miller. Um, Landon Axe, probably not a starter, but he could he could come up and get some spot starts, especially if he's healthy. Like, they may end up elevating some of those guys to the majors a little bit sooner because Miller is the jewel. I, you know, I, I was just on Toronto Radio yesterday and I was saying the same thing about Ricky Tiedemann versus some of their other pitching prospects Tiedemann Miller they're the ones you their plan comes first and the way you move other pitchers who may be very talented you you move them around them where do we need Miller to be in terms of pitching from the stretch where do we need Tiedemann to be in terms of building up his workload and making sure he can hold his velocity for the entire season because he didn't last year and I've Tiedemann ranked he's on the top 100 ranked pretty high but I saw him at the end of last year, and he'd lost two or three ticks, and, and he was only working three innings at a time, too. So they were clearly trying to manage the workload. So everything you do, just to stick with the Blue Jays, you know, Tiedemann, if he starts at AAA, he probably will. He finished at AA. That's fine, but it's, hey, this guy has to pitch on these days and throw this many innings or this many pitches, and he's not coming up into the majors until X, Y, and Z happen, and everything else gets planned around that guy. When you have an elite pitching prospect like that, that's how you – manage your, your player development of not just him, but the other pitchers who might be vying for some of the same spots in the big leagues or even on, say, a AAA roster. And Miguel Vargas, on the other hand, is going to get a shot in the majors today or uh, this season, extensive shot. They're clearing clearing mm-hmm. the way at second base. They are, uh, you know, professing optimism uh, that he'll, he'll fit right in at second base. He hasn't played a ton of it, but has played it. Uh, how do you feel about that fit? So, and I've talked to them. They are 
like really optimistic. <clears throat> They've said this guy has, you know, he's done a lot of work over the last two years, really, to, you know, I always say improve his athleticism. It's it, That's a little facile because we think of athleticism as largely an innate characteristic, but it's to do things to change his conditioning so the athleticism comes through a good bit more. Because I remember seeing Vargas, um, you know, having some scouting reports, not seeing him personally, but, you know, he had a great year at 19. I think this was 2018 or 2019. It was like, who is this guy? I don't have a whole lot on him. He was a, not a super highly paid international free agent. I think his dad or his grandfather was a, was a pretty big time player in Cuba. So he wasn't a, wasn't a nobody. But scouts were all like, he's heavy-legged. He's not going to stay at third base. There was a, way too much skepticism. Like I think back and I'm like, God, I should have trusted my instincts and had him higher. But every scout I talked to was like too high, too high, too high. He was a, on a, an early draft of my top 100 and I took him off. And because of, uh, one of the biggest reasons was that every single person criticized how he moved, how his feet worked, how his legs worked, and that is not, that's not an infielder except at first base. He's nothing like that now. He runs better. He moves better. I think he's lighter on his feet. The challenge for him at second is going to be on the pivot, right? That is the thing I think that we expect second baseman to do that requires the most quick twitch, mm-hmm. agility. Like you've, that is a thing that some guys can do it and some guys just can't. And if you can't, often you get hurt. And that may be the thing. If he can't do that, he goes back to third base. I don't think he plays anywhere but those two positions. I think he's fine at third base and ends up playing there. I know a lot of Dodgers fans are like, he looked terrible at third base at the end of last year. Like, please do not evaluate defense based on a two-week big league look, right? First time at the level, hitters are hitting balls harder. The whole pace of the game is different. Like, not everybody looks great right out of the shoot. I would really like to see him at least get a full year at one position in the majors before changing the opinion that this guy can definitely stay on the dirt and play third and probably yeah, second. In theory, second base will be a tougher place to play this year given the restrictions of the shift. I don't. That mm-hmm. may be an overblown narrative given that they'll do quasi-shifts. The shortstop can still be almost right behind second base. So, Oh, my God. They're going to be, like, dancing on the invisible line. Like, I'm over. I'm not over. I, I was over. seeing the I'm other day. Over. Like, I, 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 this is going to be I silly. saw the other day when they had the, the rules um, seminar, basically, down in Arizona. Yeah. There, there, there's, it's going to be subject to replay review. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. Oh, great. Yeah, let's go up to the booth. That's going to be awesome. Go up to the booth and see if he had a, yeah. oh, his left foot straddling second base. Are we going to have, like, refs come out with the flags? Like, he, no, he's, he's over the line. I'm yeah. sorry. We can't, yeah, can't be there. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Encroachment. <laughs> On the on the shortstop, yeah, great, great, yeah. As somebody who's like replays generally pretty good, no, no hard pass on that. We, one. we should just. Have, I mean, you can just put like a red light up, and if if they cross that line, just it goes red, and he step back. All right. Oh, yeah, right. Like the uh, in hockey, yeah. right? <clears throat> yeah. A little buzz, yeah. That would actually be much better. What if it zapped them <laughs> if they went over? Just give them a little. Shock. I mean, we have a yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, invisible uh, fence type thing. The invisible yeah, fence. The- <laughs> yeah, totally. I think we just solved the whole problem. <laughs> um, so. Uh, from the top of the list to the to the very very bottom, the if the if the Dodgers have the best of both worlds, where you have quantity and quality, the, the Tigers have uh, the worst of both world, worlds. Um, how about neither? I guess so. They have Jackson Joe, yeah. they have Jace Young uh, at the back end of the top 100, and then very 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 little depth behind that. On, I mean things are things are bleak as Scott Harris takes over as president of baseball ops there uh, after the Alex Avila era, then. When you're rebuilding a rebuild, it's uh, a tough place to be. Where do you start with that? Where do you where where do you go when you look at this farm system? Well, I think it, the biggest changes have to come in player acquisition, and that is all three areas: um, the amateur draft, 
And they drafted a little better last year, actually. They they played a little more conservative, but I, you know what? They needed that. They needed some some certainty, and I think Young gives them that. Um, and you know, because Job is still very much a wild card too. And I was easy on the list, easy off the list. Like I could make a pretty good argument. I could have made an argument to have him higher and made an argument to have him off the top one hundred. I don't think they should be going for those guys at all at this point. They need to get some certainty, some volume. It doesn't have to be college players. Teams in those situations often favor college players because they get there faster. I'm not of that opinion. It's fine to take the high school player if you really believe that's the best player available. I would avoid the high school pitching. Um, I would do that in general, but I think for the Tigers especially, that's probably the, the worst direction in which to go. But it's the amateur draft. It's international free agency, too. They, they have really had a very poor track record there with a lot of their seven-figure guys, not just not working out, but not working out fast. And one of the things I kept getting back from uh, Tigers fans is, you know, we're not that bad. We have Roberto Campos, and we have Christian Santana, and we have Manny Sequeira. I'm like, yeah, there's a pretty good chance none of those guys is anything at all. They're too young to write them off. But right now, none of those guys looks like he is going to be worth the investment, like in relative yep. terms. All those guys are bargains. They're all wildly underpaid. But you know what I mean? Like if you sign a guy for $2 million in international free agency, it's because you think he's got a chance to be a star. And I'm not sure any of those guys I just mentioned is even a big league regular. There's a pretty good chance none of them gets past double A. Uh, they've already started to make some changes in player development. Um, I skipped over pro scouting, but their trades have not been great either. So, and I don't know to what extent they've really, uh, you know, maintained the same kind of pro scouting staff or or integrated them with the front office with the R and D guys, which is what most of the teams that have good pro scouting staffs and good success, the Dodgers, the Rays, um, uh, the Padres, even have done this. Where um, you know, I I don't think the Tigers are one of those teams. So that's the, the all three of those areas need to improve. Player development is the one place they've already started to make some changes. They hired Ryan Garko a year and change, year and a couple of months ago. Um, I've known Ryan for a really long time. I think he's great. And also he's a very new voice from outside. He's worked in a lot of different roles in different organizations too. And I think new thinking is definitely something that they need there because it's been kind of a lot of the same people for a long time. Um, and from talking to him a little bit uh, over the last two years about some of the players there, they're trying different things. There is clearly a new direction in player development, and I'm very much in favor of that. And I don't know how much they get out of the, the players who are currently in the system. I hope that they get more out of them, but it may come down to largely the next batch of players. I'm not thinking Job. I'm not thinking the guys at the top, but does the, you know, the, the 6 through 20 in the system, do those are those guys they've been in the system too long and it's not going to happen. That's possible. But as they continue to bring guys into the system now and the player development, people get to work with them from day one. Now I'm more optimistic that they're going to get better results. The lack of international signings was very evident in the top 20. They had one, one it's Wilmer Flores, younger brother of Wilmer Flores. And yeah. And beyond that, there's absolutely nothing. It's all, it's all drafted players or picked up one way or another. Is that a, is that a, is that a low Actually, watermark for I, your rankings, just one international signing? Yeah. I think I think Perez, he's Wilmer Flores was an undrafted free agent. He went to junior oh. college in Arizona. He was he's obviously of international oh, yeah. um, origin. Wenzel Perez, I think, might be their only IFA on the top 20, which is terrible. The only teams that I've seen do that and not suck as a system – um, like Baltimore had a couple of years of those because recently, because you know the you know the story. I'm, for listeners who don't know, the Orioles, as a matter of principle, were just out of the international market for like ten years. 
just didn't really sign anybody other than the, you know, you know, some $10,000 guys. They were not playing in the higher end of the market to get better prospects. And so, uh, but they were drafting quite well since Mike Elias got there and had extra picks and obviously occasionally trading for prospects. So they'd have a top 20 that was 20 guys who entered, entered professional baseball somehow through the draft. Now this year, that's really changed. I think there's two or three who've come in through international and next year is going to be more. There will be, there might be six next year. Like they're trending in the right direction. That is, I think I've said this before, the Orioles system at one point, maybe a year or two ago, was basically the best a system could possibly be without having any international free agents turn into anything. That's, I mean, I, that, I thought that was pretty high praise. It says you're drafting and developing pretty well, but that ain't the way to build, right? There's, there, why do that? Why tie your hand behind your back like that? There's just no reason for I, that. Uh, I command F the wrong thing. I did free agent, and that was how I got Flores. But really, it's two guys. Uh, Wenzel Perez is at 10, and Roberto Campos at 19. So either way, two, oh, two, Campos did, two was, out of 20 is still not I good. I wasn't sure if he was on. It's terrible. And Campos, like, if you read the blurb on Campos, this is why I was doubting myself. I'm like, yeah, I don't really like Campos that much. I'm not really very optimistic. And in a better system, he doesn't make the top 20. And that's a guy they gave, It was, I think it was two and change. They gave a lot of money to him. They gave a lot of money to Santana who didn't even make the top 20. And Tigers fans are, are even had, you know, I saw a Tigers blogger who was criticizing me, which is fine. It's totally fine. Like that's the, it, I'm not saying, I don't take it personally. It's just business. But it was sort of like, he's rattling off all these names. I'm like, yeah, they're, they're not that good. That's the problem. And they're not getting better. Now, I still, Compost is young. Santos, Santana, I think, is even a year younger. And I did find one scout who's like, Sakara's got a chance. It's just going to take some, you know, it's going to take some time and we'll see. All, those guys are still all young enough to get better, but the early returns are not promising. And like to miss on a lot of high draft picks and miss on all your seven-figure IFAs and not get a ton in trades too. I mean, that's the other thing, right? They've been rebuilding for a couple of years. And then you look at the trades, it's like, where's the prospects? They're not. They're just not there. This might seem a little counterintuitive, but <clears throat> I think it's possible to land at near the bottom of your list uh, of farm system rankings and be okay. You did it for the right reasons. You had good reasons mm-hmm. for it. I'm talking, yep. of course, about uh, Atlanta, which did produce Spencer yeah. Strider, Michael Harris, uh, Von Grissom a year ago, and they effectively emptied their farm system for Olson and Murphy. So yeah. you did it to be a good team, right? Is there some value in that? I'm completely fine with that. I mean, there were some Atlanta fans who were um, not mad at me, but sort of like, this is terrible. We're not good. I don't think – I'm like, eh, no, no, no. This is fine, right? Because of the nature of these lists, right, I have to – I draw a line somewhere, and it's rookie eligibility. If you've exhausted your rookie eligibility in the majors, you're not eligible for the list. You don't count as part of the farm system. That's a definition, right? It is not – and it's, it is – somewhat arbitrary it's a popular one but it's just a line i made up. it's like the lines on the on the map right you know if you drive between north dakota and south dakota there's not actually a line in the dirt that i mean it's kind of like that and you know to me you just named three guys who um you know two of whom rookie of the year and runner-up and grissom um honestly if he's still in the system he's on the top 100 and the system looks better just just for having one guy doesn't move them up a ton in the rankings but it's something and they traded, I, I think it was it was either 10 or 12 prospects in the last t- uh, 12 months. The Olsen trade, the um, the Murphy trade, they traded Justin Henry Malloy at, yep. in the Joe Jimenez trade. So they've moved a lot of guys out specifically to make the major league team better. And that is part of why you build a good farm system. It's great. It's absolutely no 
no notes, right? This is what you do. You build a contender, you won more than World Series, you back to the playoffs. They're probably among the favorites to get back to the playoffs again this year. Um, and the one thing I'll say is, and obviously Alex Anthopoulos loves to trade, but right now it would be pretty tough for him to pull another one off, right? I think he emptied the till to go get Murphy. And then the hope is they went pretty big for in high school pitching in the draft last year, which obviously I've said many times, written many times. I don't love that as an approach. I will say this, in last year's draft, when you picked later in the round, which they did, last year's draft was horrible. Um, it was pretty bad overall, but for college pitching, it was just a void. Everybody got hurt. And so it was the one year where, you know what, if you trust your trust your scouts, trust your player development, you think we're, we can do this, we can work with that demographic, not a bad year to do it. And they took one of my favorites in uh, J.R. Ritchie, who was actually their second pick, but I think they gave him basically the same amount of money as the first pick. Like, that guy, and I talked to a couple of scouts who saw him briefly after he signed, and, and a, a lot of them liked Owen Murphy, the first rounder, more than I did coming out of the spring, but everyone came back and said, that Ritchie kid, that's what they're supposed to look like. That kid's got a chance to be a one or a two. We'll see how it holds up. Also, you know, if those guys come out and pitch pretty well in the first half of the season, then one of them might be tradable, and they might be able to go get something in the middle of the season. Just right now, I think they're a little bit – the system's cooked, and it's going to at least take half a season to get back. And it's an interesting, like, one-two punch of a strategy where you have – you're <clears throat> raiding the farm system to get better at the major league level, but then you're extending everybody. I mean, I think it's six of, six of oh, their yeah. nine starting – uh, position players are extended oh, and, yeah, and Strider. Right. So yeah. I'm not saying it's a it's a super easily replicable uh, replicable strategy, but maybe you can stomach a weaker farm system in 2023 if you can look into the late 2020s and even early 2030s and say, oh, assuming assuming uh, good health, you have Matt Olson, um, Acuna, Riley, Harris, uh, Murphy, and Strider, and maybe I'm missing someone, but that's one way to cover up uh, a weaker farm system. Although, yes, you're having fewer options to upgrade through trade uh, until you get a stronger system. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I I think what you said, like, this is a cohesive strategy, right? This is everything we've we've sort of covered everything. And I look at this as for the next two years, they're pretty much set, barring sort of a really bad run of health, luck, et cetera. They're in great shape for the next two years. In two years, you can start to restock a farm system. You have two good drafts. They're back in international, which is that's the other we didn't even yeah. mention. They were they yep. just got out of the penalty box for all the international stuff um, from five years ago, and so that put a huge dent in the system. And so that's another place they'll be able to start. They are they are already back in there and starting to add guys back to the system that way. This system a year from now should look a bit better. It's not going to be a top fifteen system, but it will look better. And then by the middle of twenty four. They've got more guys they could potentially trade. By the end of 24, when I'm doing those rankings, I expect the system to look a good bit better because they'll have had two draft, two more draft classes and um, you know two international free agent classes. Some of those guys will have come over and started to pop up. And so it, it should look better. It will certainly look different than it does now. This is sort of what – this is like the nodder as you've – in the cycle, right? You've just absolutely hit the bottom because you've traded everyone. You had, you're forced out of international. Your best other best guys are, are all promoted. There's essentially nothing left at the top of the system. They were the only team without a guy in my top 100 this year, and I think you can see why. It was actually interesting. Nobody really argued for anyone. I had Jared Schuster as their top prospect. I didn't get any arguments anywhere from – uh, saying anyone anyone in that system should have been top 100. I could absolutely see somebody like Richie being on it a year from now, and that's fine. 
but you know, that's I'm happy to wait on a, uh, especially on a high school pitcher who's barely pitched. But I feel like right now, I felt pretty confident they didn't have one, and it seemed like the industry folks I talked to were were on board with that. Throughout your research process here <clears throat> for these rankings, what farm system? surprised you most in a good way where there was maybe more in the cupboard than you expected when you started rockies the rockies was definitely i think they ended up with six on the top 100 there was some more depth in the system and i say that as somebody who's cooled a little bit on zach veen because the power i think we all thought we'd see on in veen veen was actually the last player i saw before the world ended in 2020 uh, when he was still in high school and I mean, that guy hit a ball that hasn't come down yet. And it was a beautiful swing. And it's like, God, he hasn't even begun to get into his man strength. Like that guy is going to be, you know, he's going to be 25 plus homers. And then the Rockies draft him. Oh, he's going to be 50 homers. Oh, maybe not quite, <laughs> but um, for a guy who's supposed to have that kind of power, he actually doesn't hit the ball that hard, right? He's maxing out in the low 100s in exit velocities. And, and he hasn't gotten actually that much stronger or bigger. He's, his game is very different. He has turned out to be, he's not very fast, but he's turned out to be an unbelievable base runner. Um, he's super aggressive. He like sees his opportunity and he grabs it. That may, they may have to rein that in a little bit, but I, you know, you, I do actually love to see that. Um, but now we're talking about a corner outfielder who doesn't have a ton of power and strikes out a little bit too much. And there's definitely some questions about the approach. They've got work to do on that one. But then you look below him in the system. It's actually, there's pretty good, a pretty good group of position players there. Um, I wasn't the biggest Gabriel Hughes fan in the draft, but he is a college pitcher with a potential out pitch in that slider who could move pretty quickly, at least through the low minors. And I understand the Rockies are probably just always going to feel like they need pitching. Um, I really like Benny Montgomery, who was their first pick uh, the year previously, because that's kind of the, I think that's a demographic they've done really well with, is the higher upside, very athletic um, position player who's got a really good chance to stay in the middle of the field somewhere. And he had a really good first year. He very quietly, I think, beat a lot of expectations. I still don't love he's got a little bit of the, the hand hitch and the swing. I think at some point they're going to have to try to minimize that. But it can be done. Parker Meadows, the guy in the Tiger system who used to have a huge one and basically gone. I think you get rid of that with Montgomery, you might have a star. And they've got a lot of really interesting guys lower down through the system. And it was another, it was one of those rides I kept moving through the top 20. It's like, this guy's really interesting. I kind of like this guy. I want to see more of this guy. It's nice to see because I'm sure Rockies fans are looking for some good news somewhere, and I can give you a little bit. There's a lot of excitement, I think, around Ezekiel Tovar, your number two in their system, uh, also a top 100 guy. Mm -hmm. He had a cup of coffee in the majors last year, and I think people would love to just rush him right back there, but he's only had 50 plate appearances between AAA and the majors, and there are things to be concerned about despite what a guy that projects to be High high contact guy in a park that rewards that, right? You could see him shooting the gaps um, forever. Yeah. So how would you play that situation with him entering this 2023 season? He's only 21 this year. There's no rush. I absolutely, and it, you know, like you said, he's barely played above double A at this point. Like, slow down. This guy actually has a chance to be at least an above average regular. And he has some smaller probability to become a star. Uh, and... I, oh, you always worry about guys with not, who don't have the most advanced approaches at the plate. I mean, he's not a hacker, so it could be much worse. But it's high contact. It is swing early and often. But he's got back control and good hand-eye, and he puts a lot of pitches in play. Sometimes that just carries over to the majors like nothing happens. Sometimes sometimes those guys have more adjustments to make. Let him go to AAA even for half the season. I know they play in – it's like playing on one of Jupiter's moons. But 
you know what, let him go to AAA and just see a little bit of that intermediate pitching. And then, God, if he's hitting 420 at the end of April, um, you can bring him up. Like, let him get at least a little bit there as opposed to handing him the shortstop job to start 2023. And then you're left in this situation where if in the first couple of weeks, oh God, he's overmatched, right? Because he hasn't really seen as much higher, higher level pitching. And then you have to send him back down. I would rather not see that because he's young. If he's 23, I, I probably have a very different opinion, but he's so young and relatively inexperienced because of his age and because of the last year in the pandemic. Take it easy with this guy. He's got a chance to be pretty special. Let's not rush this. On the flip side, what was a farm system that maybe surprised you in a negative way, where maybe you walked in thinking, given the hype, there's there's going to be more there, and there's more hype and substance? Um, the Red Sox were certainly one where, and I, you know, I think to some extent, I'm I'm just sort of used to the Red Sox having really good farm systems, and then. As I went through, there's four guys on my top 100, and then they had a guy who fell off the top 100. Um, Nick York was on it the previous year and then had a, really just a, a dismal season at the plate. He has a bat first second baseman, so he's got a hit. I, I do think he'll bounce back, but there was no way to sugarcoat the bad year that he had. Um, but then I started going through the rest of the system, and the number one thing was like, God, there is no pitching here at all. And some of that is a philosophy. They don't draft a lot of pitching high, certainly, and they've not had big hits on the international side. And they do have a couple of hard-throwing guys, Wickelman Gonzalez and Luis Perales, lower down in the system, but neither guy is close to a sure thing. Um, they are both, if they're, even if they're going to ultimately get close to their ceilings, they're probably you know, three, four, five years away. Um, I mean, I like Gonzalez, but teams didn't even take him in the Rule 5 draft when he was left unprotected, which I think says something about people's sense of whether he, you know, how close he is to being major league ready. There's just nobody there who projects as a major league starter right now, unless you go down, unless you want to look at Perales, who was mostly in the Gulf Coast League or the Florida Man League, whatever we're calling it, um, and, and say, well, that guy's a big league starter. Sure, that guy could be a big league starter and he could be working another job in five years. We have no idea. There's, there's way too much variance there. But between there and the majors, I don't think there's a guy who projects as a major league starting pitcher. And that's, that's actually pretty bad. Like, I don't think you should have a top half farm system if you don't have a single guy in the system who you could reasonably see as a, even a fourth starter in the big leagues. I know you got asked this a number of times in the last couple of weeks, and I, and I thought it was something that the average fan probably is not thinking about, but what has been the cost as you're looking through this of losing the short season leagues? Uh, it's huge, and I tried to bring it up every possible time I could because I'm like legitimately yeah. angry about this. I think it is hurting a lot of players, and I think it's there's two groups of players. Number one that it hurts is the international free agents, the guys who come in because you think the typical path. Now they sign in January. They usually play. They're usually age 17 for the first year, which is typically going to be in the DSL, um, and then the second year, often they'll come to the complex leagues the you know florida then or arizona they're 18 and then some of them are ready to go to low a at 19 but historically the guy who goes to low a at 19 is um advanced he is you know whether it's skills or or you know he shows more advanced approach or he's got a particular tool or two a pitch or two that carries him so that he can hold his own at that level but we would use as an industry use those short season clubs for all the other guys who just needed some kind of intermediate step and allowed you they'd spend part of the season in extended spring training so they're still at the complex working intensively with some of your coaches and then to get to go out and play a three-month season two and a half three-month season in short season in 
especially if you just look at what was the Northwest League at the time and the New York Penn League, the advanced of the short season leagues, it was a pretty good caliber of baseball, actually. There's a difference between that and like the Appalachian and the Pioneer Leagues, which were considered a lower quality. I think they called it advanced rookie. My argument all along was you can get rid of the lower two and keep the upper two. Because the idea, because the upper two really served as even more of an intermediate step um, for the guy who's like, the, these guys are prospects. They're good. They're not quite ready for low A. And I think it, it hinders a lot of their development. And there's a certain group of the uh, drafted high school players who at this point may developmentally even be better off going to college or especially to junior college. I do hope that junior colleges end up picking up a lot more guys Um it seems like they might have done so already. I think it'll take a few more years to tell if that's actually true. But I, I something has to step in to fill that gap because now we're going to have a lot of 18-year-olds coming into pro baseball, debut that summer in the complex league, and the next spring, where do they go? They're not ready for low A, so we can send them there to fail miserably, or we can keep them in the complex for another year, and now they're just – you know, they're bigger, stronger, older, and facing the same competition they faced a year before, so they lose a chance to develop. And this, to me, it's such a tiny amount of money. Yeah. And it is just because a few owners, including the, everyone I've talked to says Dick Monfort is one of the ones who pushed this, did not want to spend the extra money and wanted to prevent other teams from doing so as well. well why should they have a competitive advantage over me if I don't have a short season club? Dude, nothing is stopping you. You could find the cash in the cushions in your front office to be able to fund a short season team. And I, I think at the very least, any team that wants to operate one extra affiliate in between the complex and low A should be allowed to do so. And if they, you know what, if you don't want to spend that money, that's your call as no. I mean, it's a decision where the ramifications, the ripple effects, <clears throat> we can't really judge until right about now. We're starting to see it. You can't figure that out in 2021. Yeah. 2022 is even still too early. So it's going to become even more clear as we I, go. I really, I wonder if like, say, Two, three years from now, we're having this conversation that's, you know, we've, we're talking about a, a, a talent yeah. gap. So why is there less talent than Myers? Why are we not seeing the same guys coming to the majors that we did, you know, three, four years ago? I hope yeah. that's wrong. I, I don't think it's yeah. wrong. I think we're on the Yeah, something. guys not making it to the majors or guys getting there later than they, they should have because they, they hit a Yes, agreed. Know, they plateaued. And that's a loss for, for everyone, for the players and for the sport, right? For the own, for, for teams, right? The whole point is you're trying to get players to the majors to help you win. Well, this is not in service. Eliminating short season teams is in service of saving money. It's not in service of winning more games. One trade to touch on here a week ago, a couple outfield prospects or one former prospect uh, involved. The Guardians traded Will Benson to the Reds for Justin Boyd and a player to be named. You had Boyd who played last year, I think, at rookie ball and A ball um, at number 15 of the Red system. Um, I believe Benson had already exhausted prospect status, uh, so he turns yeah. 25 this summer. He'll he'll get more reps in Cincinnati than he would have in Cleveland. Um, are you buying this move significantly, changing his outlook at all, or is this just an opportunity, more opportunity here than he would have had? Yeah, more opportunity, better hitters park. I mean, he could he does have power. He could accidentally run into some, but you know, this guy has had, by all accounts, a great kid, a super smart kid. I think he was committed to Duke when he was uh, when he was still in high school. Um, and I know he had re- he went to he kind of repeated AAA last year, and uh, the stat line was pretty right. good. There's real real swing and miss issues here, and. I think that is, and you saw it in the majors too. And maybe he figures out, maybe he's a kid who gets to age 27 and starts to figure something out. He's pretty gifted athletically, intellectually. He is the type of guy, if you're the Reds, I completely understand it. Boyd, nice draft pick. I like him. 
was not elite, you know, wasn't their first rounder, years away from helping the big league club. Hey, we've got some playing time. Benson's got huge upside. There's a power speed upside there. And I mean, if nothing else, he's shown he's willing to draw a walk. It may come with a ton of swing and miss. It may come with too many strikeouts, but at least that's sort of in there. Like, I absolutely get it. And I think the contact quality when he does square it up is going to be really good. Um, I worry a ton about the swing and miss. I've never been a huge fan really since he was drafted because I worried um, about that swing and miss. And because so much of it was tied to the fact that his swing has almost always been a mess. And I say it like that because he's been through something like seven or eight different iterations of the swing since he got into pro ball. I mean, that kid was changing his swing often multiple times during his high school season. And I don't know that he's really figured that out yet. I hope it is. I hope we see him in spring training and it's like, hey, that's a good swing. That's the best swing Benson's ever had. If that happens, put him, you know, he's on your breakout list. He is absolutely that kind of guy. There's so much underlying talent here. And I like the deal for both teams because he ain't playing for Cleveland. Totally fine with that. They got a good prospect in return. And for the Reds, it's, we have the playing time and we're not winning this year. Let's take some risks. Let's play around a little bit. Playing time can be, I think Joe Sheehan just wrote this the other day. The playing time you can offer as a rebuilding team is one of your strongest assets. You need to use it wisely on your prospects or on development projects, whether they're internal or external, to sort of see what we've got and see if this guy's better. And the good rebuilding teams often find those players from somewhere else and bring him in and say, hey, we're just going to change one little thing and give him playing time, and that guy takes off. It's found money. Go find a guy who's on the fringe of a major league contender who is not going to get a chance, who might be stuck at AAA, who maybe is out of options, um, and give him a chance. It's the same thing as signing a a veteran free agent for a a million dollars and trying to flip him at the deadline. This is this is taking a flyer on a guy and putting him in a park where he can absolutely succeed. If he's going to succeed, he's going to be in Cincinnati. So, uh, I'd like absolutely. to make the situation it's great. for him. It is a great ballpark for him. It, that ballpark masks a lot of flaws for a hitter. So I'm no, I'm good with it. When I saw it, I, I have to say, I don't know. Tell me what you thought when that happened. I was like, really? They traded well. Like I thought they loved Will Benson, but then I sat down and looked at it. I'm like. Yeah, this makes perfect sense, actually, given who else is there, who's coming behind them. It's like, no, I get it. I'm good with this for both and sides. And it came on the heels of trading um, Nolan Jones to the Rockies. Well, there's another guy going to a nice ballpark to hit in. Yep. Um, and so it feels like yes, they're trying with, to clear... With, with some power. Right. They're trying to clear some space with these, um, with these corner guys and they have the number two farm system, so they're doing all right in that department. And, and they're, they're a team that's... Um, they didn't have the down year people were expecting last year. They're 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 gearing up. They're powering up with a a, a great farm system. So um, it made sense. We'll see if they found something in Boyd as well. But I just don't think they were ever going to use Benson. So mm-hmm. um, it, yeah, I agree. The last thing I wanted to wanted to throw at you was to was to get your history with the radar gun. Our colleague Zach Buchanan wrote an oral history on the history of the radar gun, going way back there. And uh, it made me wonder, do you carry one? Do you, when, did you, when did you start doing that if you do? And, and what's sort of in your experience with the radar? Um, I have used a radar gun, um, oh God, for 16, 17 years now. Um, I have one that's mine. Um, I used to use one that was ESPNs. I went through a couple. Um, one died at one point. Um, and uh, travel with it almost all of the time. Um, you know, if I know I'm going to just see hitters, especially high school hitters, there's basically no chance I'll need it. I will. That's about the only time I'll leave it at home. I actually also still 
usually bring it to minor league games because although lots of minor league ballparks do have pretty accurate radar gun readings, they, um, the, uh, I find they're not consistent enough in putting the numbers up on the board and, you know, it's the worst feeling where you're like, what was that pitch? What was the, you know, just the velocity. And sometimes the velocity is a little bit of a clue. It's like, was that a backup slider? Was that a change up? What happened? And often the velocity is, is helpful in helping you decipher that quickly before the next pitch is thrown. So, um, you know, I love it. I also find just from like a mental standpoint, it is very useful for me as somebody who's, um, you know, my sort of peripatetic mind, I'm just always thinking about other things, noticing other things, right? Having the radar gun there is a great point mm-hmm. of focus. So I'll often use the radar gun, even though I don't actually care that much about the velocity at that point, because I've already figured, you know, I got this guy, right? I know what he is. Um, and so, uh, uh, yeah, I carry it all the time. And it was interesting, I thought, in Zach's piece, he he had all that stuff about the going through the airport yeah. with it. I, yes, I get I get sort of, you know what I always do is if it's if it's in my carry-on luggage, I just take it out, right? Even at pre-check, right? There's a little bolt. I just take it out, take it apart so it doesn't look like a gun because, right? You just, the battery, the handle's the battery. You just take it off and then check it and put it, and then not check it, then put it through the belt. And if they want to ask... I'm happy to talk to them. Like, don't don't act weird. Um, if you leave it in your bag, though, I, I don't know that anybody's doing that, but you're asking for trouble. That's kind of dumb, right? Like, these people are, are and I have no, no, really nothing bad to say about TSA people, but, like, think of what they're doing, how much they see every day, and what they're looking for. If they see something that's shaped like a gun, that's on you, buddy. They're going to take a second look. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I just, yeah, just take it apart. And because um, I do like a lot of my trips, it's one or two nights somewhere to see a college guy. And so it's just like, I got a nice duffel bag. It's just, that's, you know, I can fit easily fit two days of clothes into it and a radar gun and um, the video camera goes in my backpack and that's it. So just take that out. It's not a big deal. One of the perks of, of a TSA pre-check is that you can leave your shoes on, you can put your laptop in your bag and you can leave your radar gun in, stashed in your in your bag as well. So maybe that's worth upgrading. Um, yeah. So that's going to that's gonna do it for today. You can check out all of Keith's work from top 100 to farm system rankings to organization top 20s to Q&As with re- readers and, and beat writers alike. Um, a lot of beat writers reaching out and wanting Keith to elaborate as if he hasn't done enough already. Uh, you can find all that on <laughs> theathletic.com. You can get a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash baseball show, $2 per month for the first year. And you can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me at Stephen J. Nesbitt. The Athletic Baseball Show will be back early next week. Have a great weekend. I'm Tashawn Reed. I'm a black man from Ferguson, Missouri. My dad, Kenneth, grew up in the Pruitt-Igoe Projects in downtown St. Louis in the 50s and 60s. Water lines in several of the Pruitt-Igoe apartment buildings broke and a subsequent flow of water turned into ice. And now raw sewage bubbles out of the ground like a malevolent spring. He lived through what would become known as the Civil Rights Movement. My mom, Brenda, was raised in Osceola, Arkansas in the 60s and 70s. In the South, racial tension hadn't waned one bit. Today, I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to... My parents told me about their experiences and taught me the ugly history of what Black people in America went through. 
Then, in 2008, it felt like maybe, just maybe, America as a whole was taking some positive steps forward. If there is anyone out there. When Barack Obama was elected as America's first black president. Who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible. Perhaps the days my parents described living through were a thing of the past. Who still questions the power of our democracy. Tonight is your answer. I know now that that pipe dream wasn't real. I had already started to figure that out as I got older, but it was really driven home in August of 2014. There is growing outrage tonight after an unarmed African-American teenager was shot and killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson, Missouri. Darren Wilson, a white police officer, shot and killed Michael Brown, a black teenager, in the street within an apartment complex in Ferguson. I did not hear once he yelled, freeze, stop, or hope. It was just horrible to watch. Brown's body laid in the street for hours. And as word spread that Brown had attempted to surrender before Wilson ended his life, more people gathered around the scene. Eventually, their curiosity turned into anger, and their anger turned into protest. Get us several more units over here. There's going to be a problem. Are there any available Ferguson units who can respond to Canfield and Copper Creek advised? We're going to need crowd control here. It was the spark of an uprising that would boil over in the months to come, and it became a landmark moment in the origin of the Black Lives Matter I knew all about the deep-rooted antagonism between police and the Black community, but seeing it in person like this was different. As someone who looked like Brown, who was from the same neighborhood, and who was the same age, everything about the situation his tragic death, the response from the community, and the polarizing national discourse that followed resonated with me. I was only a few weeks away from starting my freshman year at Mizzou and pursuing a career in journalism. And I quickly made the decision that wherever my career took me, I would make sure to highlight the issues that plague my community in my coverage. That's why I'm doing this podcast. This is Between the Lines, a series dissecting how the NFL, America's biggest game, has dealt with America's biggest issue, race. The NFL does have a a race problem, but more than that, the owners have a race problem. You're going to hear from more than a dozen former and current diverse players, coaches, and executives about their experiences in the NFL. How players grapple with speaking out in the next man up culture of football. I couldn't sit around and not do anything about what was going on in our country, or at least address it from my, a perspective that I could make, have some impact in. To diverse coaches and executives who have broken through race-based glass ceilings. To others who never got their shot. You realize that no matter what you do, sometimes it's not enough. I'm not going to let someone else determine my happiness. We'll explore how the league and a group of mostly white billionaire owners have historically failed to support diversity and how they appear set to only continue to fall short. At the end of the day, these 32 billionaires, they're the ones who have to say, yes, we're doing it. The NFL is one of the most visible, profitable, and influential businesses in America. If the league doesn't reflect diversity and inclusion, and it hasn't for quite some time, it permeates throughout the rest of the country. That won't change unless we continue to talk about it. 
We start by diving into the history of the game and where football stands within the movement towards a more equal society. Welcome to Between the Lines, Episode 1, The Long History of Football and Race. Thank you.